everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I'm joined here again today by the wonderful Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole is going to be telling us all about the case of Rodney Alcala, also known as the dating game killer, and Journey is going to be educating us on the uh, forensic sketches and sketch artists. And just before we get started, I would like to note that there's a listener's discretion advised as there are discussions mentioning sexual assault and the death involving a child. Um, But with that said, I'm really looking forward to this one. So, Nicole, would you like to tell us about the dating game killer? I would love to. Um, I will preface this and say chronologically when I cover like what happened if things get confusing just let me know because like he was convicted once for certain crimes and then stuff came out later on that tied him to other crimes so it wasn't like all at once he was convicted for all of these crimes so if there's any confusions just let me know um and we will work through it together um But yes, so Rodney Alcala, he was born on August 23rd, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas, and he um, was born by the name of Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor. Bucor? Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Bucor. Um, He and his family moved to Mexico when he was around eight years old, and while there, his father is said to have abandoned them um, just three years after arriving. Then after his father kind of left the picture... Alcala, his his siblings, excuse me, and mother then proceeded to move to Los Angeles um, when he was about eleven years old, and that keep that age in mind for later on. So he was about eleven when he moved back to America. Um, by seventeen, Alcala listed in the U.S. Army as a clerk, and in 1964, Alcala went AWOL though, and decided to hitchhike back to his mother's house. Uh, afterwards, Alcala underwent, obviously he was not, I don't know if you're caught in that instance, but he was found. And so he underwent um, assessments with a military psychiatrist and Alcala was actually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. This led to his discharge at the age of 21 in 1964. After his little stint in the army, Alcala then attended California State University before transferring to UCLA, where he graduated with a fine arts degree in 1968. Alcala first entered the police spotlight, though, um, the same year in 1968, after he had assaulted eight-year-old Tally Shapiro. A concerned witness had actually seen him luring Tally into his car and then she had gotten into it and then they drove off and he's like, "Mm, something's not right about this. So he called the police and followed them to the uh, apartment. Police actually arrived and um, the responding officers actually were there. Like Alcala was there when they responded at the house. He could not flee. When officers entered the house, they saw that Shapiro was on the floor, unconscious, um, badly assaulted, but she was still alive, um, miraculously. And the order of events following Shapiro's discovery in Alcala's apartment is a bit confusing um, based on the sources I read, but from my, my understanding... Alcala had fled to New York after this. Like, I would think, though, that he would be charged, taken into custody, 
all of that would happen in in California. But by the sounds of it, it sounds like he managed to get to New York before he was charged or convicted with anything. Um, that so. I am not completely clear on that. If someone would like to correct me on that, please let me know. But from my understanding, he fled to New York. Um, I don't know if he was supposed to stay in California and he just decided to leave in hopes of evading arrest. But it was while he was in New York, um, he attended classes at the New York University for Film. And he was actually under the alias of John Berger. And this is B-E-R-G-E-R. And while there, Alcala had studied um, under Roman Polanski, actually. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he was a Hollywood director and the husband of late Sharon Tate, who was murdered by the Manson cult. Wow. Yeah. What other case was the Manson cult that we just talked about? Um, It was two episodes ago. Oh. This was um, a Rebecca. I think it was Jeffrey McDonald. Yeah, was it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, they found that book in his uh, apartment that like was all about like the Manson family crimes and how much his crimes resembled his. Yeah, right. Okay, that's wild. Weird. I also think it's weird that he was able to like get to New York because yeah, like you're like if you. Mm-hmm. When you're arrested, people are like, don't <laughs> leave the state. <laughs> and yeah. then he like, was like, bye, I'm leaving the state. And yeah. like, he knows whose apartment it is. So you know to like search airports for someone who like fled, right? Like that's but, my thought. Yeah. And like the thing is, Alcala like opened the door and greeted the police officers. What the heck? <laughs> so he wasn't taken into custody, like, right then? That's what I don't know. And the sources that I've read, I don't know if I'm just reading shit sources, but, like, the sources I read, like, did not delve into that. And there's a 48-hour episode. I wasn't able to access the episode, but I was reading a bit of the transcript, and it was saying mm-hmm. that, like, the police were greeted by Alcala, and he, like, walked in, and he saw the body of this girl on the floor (laughs) what the heck (laughs) and so like later all my sources are saying that he was arrested in new york too which i'll get into so like i don't i'm a little bit lost on the timeline there Mm -hmm, that's fair um but if i like if i find more doing more research later on i'll share it with all the listeners or if the listeners know please let me know because I may not be looking at the right sources. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, but yeah, so he, that was just short little tidbit working under Roman Polanski. Um, but this, yeah, so he was placed, Alcala was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list in early 1971. And from this list, some of the girls at an arts camp in New Hampshire had actually recognized their old camp counselor, John Berger. And so they told the camp's dean, um, and they were like, hey, like, pretty sure this is our counselor. You may want to contact someone about it. So they later contacted the police, and Alcala was soon arrested and pled guilty to the lesser charge of child molestation and served 34 months for his crime. So, like, I don't know if that happened before he went to New York to film school or he did the film stuff and then he was... I don't really know. Long story short, though, he was arrested. He became a sex offender, registered sex offender. He was in jail for that. After that, though, you would think, you know, you're 
as a sex offender, options are limited. Um, no, he managed to land a job with the Los Angeles Times in 1977 as a typesetter. So, of sorry, it, of like any employer, you wouldn't yeah. think one that directly deals in media would want that. Mm-hmm. Right? And his whole shtick, too, that you'll come to kind of learn is that he liked to say he was a photographer, a f- fashion photographer, and like that's how he kind of lured people in. So I think with his like art school and his photography, that's how he kind of got into the LA Times. But um, yeah, not looking good for them. On top of that, though, because who would think to do a background check? Um, he somehow became bachelor number one on the primetime television show The Dating Game in 1978, despite being a registered sex offender. That's, like, so shocking. hmm Because mm-hmm. I, like, if I was to go on a dating show, I would like to know that the people that I'm talking to aren't criminals of, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, one would hope, but unfortunately, this this precaution was not taken. Um, and this was a show. If I mean, the name kind of explains it. But this is a show a show where men and women were interviewed um, as like prospective dates. So, like for this, I don't know if all of the prospective dates were men, but for this episode, it was um, Cheryl Bradshaw. I believe, yeah, Cheryl Bradshaw was the contestant, and she had three bachelors lined up for her that you'd ask questions, they'd answer. You wouldn't see them face to face, and you'd kind of, it's like a blind date speed round. Um, but yeah, no speed, nope, that's not what I meant to say. Um, no background check was conducted, like I said, and <laughs> Alcala was introduced as, quote, a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. And then that's how he was just introduced to the show. I didn't like... No! (laughs) That was an icky line. Yeah, Yeah. like, fully developed. Developed. And you would... His father left when he was like eight. What, did he not? Like he was eleven by the time he came to Los Angeles. Yeah, the father wasn't in the picture, from my understanding, at thirteen. Maybe did he like? Did he have like a stepfather? I guess who maybe he's like. This is my dad. I don't know. I assume it's just for show and like. It's he's probably just, just a yeah compulsive liar too. Honestly, yeah. with it being like the seventies, uh, like dating game show, I feel like they probably just made up everyone's backstories. Yeah, yeah, I could 100% see that. Um, yeah, I'll post to there's a little snippet on YouTube of like him being introduced on the dating game and like the other contestants and stuff like that. And the announcer like, introduces it really creepily too. like, I tried to give it a little creepy edge when I was saying it. But like his was just, you're a little uncomfortable hearing it. I'm excited to see that. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had that, but yeah, Um, no, I'm glad you do. On the last slide, I have the link to it if you want to look at it. And then I have a snippet uh, in two slides to kind of go with it. Um, But yeah, so when the contestant and prospective date Cheryl Bradshaw had asked him, you know, questions, that's the type of game show it is. She had asked him, what kind of meal would you be? 
And Alcala answered, I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Why don't you peel me? (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) and then to top it off, she also asked, what's your best time? This I was confused about because I'm like, your best time for what? Like your best running 100 meter sprint time, your best (laughs) hold your breath time. Like, who knows? What's your best time? Yeah. Um, but Alcala then responded, quote, the best time is at night, nighttime, end quote. <laughs> he sounds like, like a really intellect, intellectual individual like, with, these, the, with these answers. Yeah. And the thing is, though, he purportedly has an IQ of or had an IQ of 160. I assume that's him just making this up because I could not yeah. imagine that. But a lot of witnesses who like had encountered him through his like photography and stuff like that genuinely said he was a charming and like smart guy. And that's how he gained trust with other people. He just the answers he is giving is like an F boy on Tinder. Yeah. Just like. Yeah. yeah. It's just not good. <laughs> we love um, to see it. And the other contestants picked up on that, too. They were a little off-put by what he was putting out. Um, Bachelor number two, Jed Mills, he said that he had an almost immediate aversion to Alcala. He had said, quote, something about him, I could not be near him. I am kind of bending toward the other guy to get away from him, and I don't know if I did that consciously, but thinking back on it, I probably did, end quote. Um, And so I did watch a clip of them being introduced to see, and yeah, um... He is distinctively like leaning as far as he can towards bachelor number three and away from Alcala, which I thought was quite interesting. That is very interesting. So if you go to the next slide, it shows you Alcala's on the left. Jed Mills is in the middle. So you can see that he's like kind of moving away. Yeah, very much Um, so. But it's also interesting that the guy beside Jed Mills is, like, leaning into Jed Mills. Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't know know if it's just, like, a... He scares us, so we're going to, like, band together. team up. Yeah, Yeah. maybe. I could see that. Um, But, yeah, in another interview, Mills had also said that, quote, he was quiet, but at the same time, he would interrupt and impose when he felt like it. And he was very obnoxious and creepy. He became very unlikable and rude and imposing as though he was trying to intimidate. I wound up not only liking this guy, not wanting to be near him. He got creepier and more negative. He was a standout creepy guy in my life. End quote. So he just like wasn't very liked. He very much was like putting on a persona to be chosen on this dating game. And that was just like not who he was at all. Um, But ultimately, his charm and um, innuendo did win him a date with Bradshaw. However, after they met face to face, she actually opted out and said that he was really creepy and didn't want to go on a date with him. And honestly, rightfully, rightfully so. Yeah, I'm actually shocked that he ended up like winning the game. Right? I know. I'm kind of questioning like her judgment on that one a little her choice in men <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad once they actually met she was like oh no Ooh, never mind yeah no, but, no yeah. thank you but with those answers like i would just be i would just be weirded out 
right and like yeah. she's asking what your favorite meal is or yeah what was it your favorite meal not your why are you answering banana stop like it just doesn't make <laughs> sense who's eating a banana for a meal yeah <sighs> anyways at the time of his appearance on the dating game show though it's believed he's already murdered two women though and this wouldn't be known or come to light until decades later after he had already been arrested wow not even those crimes for other crimes yikes yeah just a little yikes um and so in june 1971 these were the two women um he's believed to have murdered or has murdered it was 23 year old cornelia crilly um she was sexually assaulted and strangled with her own stockings in her new york apartment and six years later, 23-year-old Ellen Hover disappeared on July 15, 1977. And there was a note on her calendar that actually stated she was meeting with a John Berger um, on the night or close to the night of her disappearance. And her remains were discovered in New York's Westchester County in 1978. So these two murders have happened. Um, and... He actually had been interviewed in 78, which was the same year that um, Ellen Hover's body was discovered. He's been interviewed as a potential suspect in the actual Hillside Strangler killings. Um, However, he had been cleared of those crimes and was said not to have been the Hillside Strangler. Uh, But yeah, he still was not connected to those murders at that time. It wasn't until the disappearance of 12-year-old Robin Samso um, of Huntington Beach, California, that he kind of went downhill and fell in the grips of law enforcement, I guess. Um, So in 1978, a sketch of a possible suspect was released to the public following Robin Samso's disappearance and murder. And this was actually Alcala's parole officer who had seen the sketch and recognized him and decided he would obviously report that because why wouldn't you? And so this led to him being tracked down in July of 1979 and he was arrested for the abduction and murder of Robin Samso at that time. During the investigation, the home of Alcala's mother was searched and during which they found a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle that had belonged to Alcala. So they had gone to investigate this storage locker. And in there, they found hundreds of photos of young girls and women found. Um, Many were nude, unfortunately. And there were also two pairs of earrings found. One had been identified as belonging to Robin Samso. And a second pair had also been found. But I'll come back to that um, in a little bit. So he was found guilty and sentenced to death in Orange County in 1980. This conviction, though, was overturned four years later by the California Supreme Court, granting him a new trial due to the jury apparently having been improperly told about his past criminal record. So that happened. He was tried again in 1986 for Samso's murder. Once again, was found guilty and again sentenced to death. This conviction, though, also overturned due to claims of a witness having been hypnotized. He must be like, he must have an in with the friggin' 
mm-hmm. justice system because there's mm-hmm. no way he was charged and convicted twice for the exact same murder and they were both overturned for like stupid shit that could have been prevented yeah yep. um yeah it just doesn't make any sense thankfully though i will say with that being overturned and time passing they were able to find and use um like DNA technologies and advancements in technologies to tie him to more people. So when he was charged again, which I'll get into, he was not getting out of it that time around. Um, but yeah, so further DNA evidence was found tying Alcala to not only the Sam, um, not only to Samso's crime and her murder, um, but others as well. So the second pair of earrings that were found had traced back to a Charlotte Lamb through DNA testing. So by 2005, Alcala was actually indicted for the murders of four other women, Charlotte Lamb being one of them, um, whose DNA matched on those earrings. So he was not only being charged once again for the trial for the murder of 12-year-old Samso, but he was also being charged for the murders of 18-year-old Jill Barcombe, who uh, died in 1977, 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead, 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb, whose earring was in the um, storage locker, but also the murder of 21-year-old Jill Parento. And so all of these murders ranged from 1977 to 1979. And Jill Barcombe's... I thought this was quite interesting, too, because Jill Barcombe's murder was initially believed to have been part of the Hillside Strangler, like, victim group... And I thought that was fascinating because he had been interviewed as a possible, maybe a possible suspect in the Hillside Strangler case. But the fact that neither were part of the Hillside, but somehow also connected, I thought that was interesting. I think he got very lucky because I feel like um, it'd be so easy to be like, oh, he killed her and she's one of the Hillside Strangler victims. So therefore, he's the Hillside Strangler. And then the actual Hillside Strangler would have been like, I'm getting off scot-free, baby. Like, (laughs) yeah, let's go. Yeah, that's actually really impressive that he didn't get, like, pinned for that. Mm -hmm. Well, considering they've tried twice before to pin him, not even on the other crimes, but just the one, and they didn't get him. Yeah. Honestly, not that shocked. He didn't, he wasn't pursued further. Yeah. Um, But yeah, fun little tidbit. And so DNA evidence would later show that um, Alcala was responsible for Jill Barcombe's death. I will say the one good thing about his case consistently being overturned is that they just found more evidence to screw him over with, which love that. That's true. They just were like, oh, we just have to dig harder. We have to do it again. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He actually... (laughs) I kind of giggle at this. Um, Alcala opted to represent himself during the court proceedings. And this was like a two-month trial. And Judge Francisco Brezeno said that, quote, Alcala's testimony in court was not credible because of his numerous lies to family, friends, and cops soon after one of the murders, end quote. Um, While representing himself, Alcala declined to speak about the murders or address family members. So I don't know if he was just like avoiding the co- the topic altogether, despite that being the trial. <laughs> um, and it's also said that he had morphed into two different people during questioning. 
So he somehow interrogated himself for five hours on the stand where he would speak in a deep voice and address himself as Mr. Alcala as he was questioning, as he was asking the questions. And then as he answered the questions, he would respond in his normal voice. That's hilarious. (laughs) That's like out of a sitcom. Right? That's so odd. So like... I, I would love I, it I even more if he like, it. yeah, if he like ran down to like <laughs> ask the question and like ran back up to sit in the seat and just like <laughs> answer five it. fucking hours. Oh my <sighs> gosh. And imagine the jury just like sitting there watching it and the judge is like not saying anything about it. Yeah. I'd be asleep like, if I was jury or judge at that point. Like five hours. That's for a him long to, like, time not talk about the murders or the family though so my impression is like in those five hours like what are you questioning about then that's a good point yeah i didn't even think of that and at what point like why is that continuing to go on would it not Mm -hmm. just be irrelevant information and you cut that and stop it i don't know yeah like the other um like the defense attorney is like um objection hearsay like that doesn't like matter relevance yeah 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 relevancy yeah Hmm. Um, so yeah, five hours of that. I mean, it makes sense now that the trial took two months if he's questioning himself for five hours. Um, but yeah, like I kind of briefly mentioned before, I guess he would often tell women he was a fashion, excuse me, a fashion photographer and he wanted to take photos for contests. I don't know what contests were being conducted, but he would use his charm and intelligence to persuade these victims. So yes, in 2010, Once again, third time, found guilty. And so he was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder this time around, though. Not just in the death of Robin Samso, but also in the deaths of Jill Barcombe, Charlotte Lamb, Jill Parenteau, and Georgina Wixted. And he was also found guilty on one count of kidnapping. Ultimately, again, sentenced to death. I feel like we've kind of glossed over the fact that this is happening in 2010, Yes! Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> yeah! Um, wow! Yeah! Wait, what? Seriously? Yeah. I missed that. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. So, new information, it was around like 2003, 2005, that more, like, the the advances in technology helped them find more DNA evidence, essentially, in that time frame. And then between, like, 2005 to t- 2010, they were, had, like, working on their case, had the trial, and it was 2010 that he was um, sentenced again, which is wild. And it goes until the latest information I have on him is 2015. Actually, 2021, but that's, like, nothing really happened except his, he died in 2021. Spoiler (laughs) alert, died in 2021. (laughs) Um, That's crazy. But the latest case advancement was 2016. 15, which is insane to me because I don't recall ever seeing him. I don't know if I was even reading the news at that time, but like, yeah, I feel like that's pretty noteworthy. Right? Yeah. Like, given how infamous, like, his case mm-hmm. is now, it feels like. Like, mm-hmm. how did we not hear about who this guy was and that that was, like, actively happening? Mm-hmm. I remember having conversations with my mom and, like, the dating game killer name was thrown out here and there, but I think it was much later when I was in school and like, it was kind of relevant to the topics at hand that we were learning about that we were talking about it. Um, 
But yeah, 2010s, like late for the fact too that these crimes happened. Hi, Lewis. Um, the these crimes happened in the 70s. And yeah, it, <laughs> and he's for a third time being convicted in 2010. What? That's like a long time. Yeah, to, yeah. And he's been like, is he? I guess if it's the charges are like thrown out he's just out like in the world no i think he was still in prison okay so he's been in prison since like 1978 kind of okay yeah from my understanding he looks like he spent a lot of time in prison (laughs) okay all right well that's promising at least (laughs) yeah that makes me feel a little better because i would just yeah like if he was just out in the wild until like 2010 i'd be a little bit nervous yeah no i can't imagine that was the case i think my limited knowledge on court proceedings i would think that if it's overturned you still have to have like a trial to have a fair trial so then you're just kind of going back to square one to getting your information and then like you're prepping for it while he's still behind bars okay interesting that's what i'm gonna guess happened please correct me if i'm wrong but yes so during sentencing third time charged five counts first degree murder during sentencing um marion connelly she was the mother of 12 year old robin samso she had said in her victim impact statement that quote i'm waiting for the day that he dies i only wish i could be the one to administer the injection end quote and honestly i i understand <laughs> i really yep. do oh that feels like a, yeah it's a fair statement of a mother of a murder victim yeah I guess, yeah. um... Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty tame reaction for that. Oh, like, I don't blame yeah. her. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, additionally, too, Judge Francisco Brizeno apparently was not one to typically address the court during trials. However, he did have the final word at Alcala's sentencing, and he took a lot of offense to his closing statements And just to top it all off, too, because questioning yourself for five hours, talking in different voices, what's even better than that is playing the song Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guntry as his closing statement, because he apparently felt that he the jury would hear via song that they would also be killers if they sentenced him to death. So they would that would cause them to not sentence him to death. That is absolutely ridiculous. Right? Yeah. That's a very Just, peculiar thing to do. I have never heard of a defendant, uh, yeah, playing a song as their closing remark. Well, I almost like if I was the judge and I watched him like question himself for five hours and then play the song <laughs> as his closing statement, I would almost be like, we need to get this man tested to see if he's even like able to be criminally responsible for this case like this man is mm-hmm. off the wall mm-hmm. um, Interesting. okay so it's alice's restaurant massacre by arlo guthrie okay <laughs> like imagine your closing statement yeah. is this <laughs> this song is called alice's restaurant it's about alice and the restaurant <laughs> But Alice's Restaurant is not the name of the restaurant. That's just the name of the song. Like this man. <laughs> this man's defense. His clo- 
statement for murdering five women is this song in what world is this song going to tell the jury that they would be killers if they sent it to death so the message of the song alice's restaurant is a is a quote from wikipedia deadpan protest against the vietnam war draft oh so that's not- interesting okay yeah oh this is a 17 minute long song yeah i'm not gonna play that actually for you guys now that i look at it he did a five-hour interrogation with himself and then played a 17 minute song as his closing statement (laughs) tells you a lot about who he was i'd say in the least that's funny oh but yeah that was his closing statement it inspired a movie really yeah, 1969 film, Alice's Restaurant, which starred the um, songwriter or oh, cool. musician or whoever he is. Hmm. Very nice. But wow. yeah, jury obviously did not get the message and sentenced him to death. Um, so yeah, this was 2010. And then same year, I'm, I'm unsure if it was before. Like, used as evidence, or it came out after the fact that he had been convicted and sentenced. Um, But police did release 120 photos to the public in hopes of identifying some of the women and the young girls. And so these were 120 photos out of the however many thousand um, in the storage locker. So in addition to those 120 that they could share with the public... There was also 900 photos that couldn't be shared because of their sexually explicit content and the nature of it. That's crazy. Yeah. But out of those 120 photos that were decent enough to share, um, 21 women ended up coming forward to identify themselves um, in the first weeks of, yeah, the photos being made public. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So obviously not all of the women in the slightest, but like a good number of women, which is well, cool. sorry. And who's to say okay. like that of the photos they could share, there weren't other women who they couldn't share that mm-hmm. could never come forward. Mm-hmm. And I did. I put the link on our slides. I'll put the link on our website as well or embed it. So um if you do, if someone listening happens to recognize anyone, um, I'll have resources at the end to contact. But a lot of them, not a lot, the f- some of them, they've definitely cropped to make them al- publicly allowed to be shared. Um, I think many were sexually explicit and they had to do what they could to just get the faces out there, I guess. So yeah, pictures were sent, shown 2010. In 2011, um, Alcala was indicted for the murders of Ellen Hover and Cornelia Crilly in New York, or Crilly in New York. So these were the two that he had been, it was believed he had killed before appearing on the dating game show. And so they actually were linked to him and he was indicted in 2011 for those. He pled guilty to two counts of intentional murder in December 2012 and was sentenced to a concurrent 25 years to life in prison sentence. So 
if somehow his California murder conviction convictions would be overturned, um, he would then be sent to New York to serve out his sentence. So if they decided, oh, third time's a charm, we're going to overturn this again, he's screwed regardless, and he's going to he would have sent spent the rest of his time in New York. Um, he's also a suspect in various other crimes. However, unfortunately, many of these cases won't be prosecuted. And this is because he was already receiving the maximum sentence possible, that being death. So I guess a lot of like prosecution didn't see a point because like why the bad guys are already in jail. They don't really care about answers at that point, unfortunately. Um, which is so sad for the victim's family too. Like, I feel like that's just closure that needed to be had for many of those families. Even just to know, like he did it. This court Mm -hmm. of law said that he was responsible for this. Yeah. Um, But also like, was it just the murders that happened in New York? Were they able to charge for those because they happened in a different state? And that's why he was able to get the extra 25 years. I assume so. Okay. Yeah, because he um, he's believed to have where does my note? Yeah, so he's actually been suspected or linked to murders in L.A., Marin County, Seattle, New York, New Hampshire, and Arizona. So wow. like, yeah. So I'm not sure what was so special about the New York ones. I think it was just they had evidence he was charged maybe they were fearful that it was going to be overturned a third time given his track history or his track mm-hmm. record so they were going to charge him with this but now that he had like his death sentence in california his life sentence in new york they're like well, why would we tack on to that which is yeah. silly in my opinion but i can also kind of understand it <laughs> Yeah. In a perfect world, it would be nice, but the courts just don't have the time or the money to do that, really. Exactly. And for a fucking two-month-long trial, I I am sure he would have dragged it out as much as he could have. Yeah, and the judges were probably like, this guy is just going to represent himself, and I don't need to sit through another five hours of him talking about not the murders. Yeah, exactly. Um... So, yeah, in 2013 now, a family member had rec- um, who was looking through all of the photos released to the public, she, um, a family member actually did recognize one of the women as being 28-year-old Christine Thornton. Uh, Thornton disappeared in 1977 in Wyoming, but her remains wouldn't be discovered until 1982. And then her identity would still remain a mystery until 2015. And it was when Thornton's siblings contacted authorities and submitted a DNA sample to a database um, in 2015 that DNA was able to be matched to the remains discovered in Wyoming. They had determined that the photos taken of Thornton were not very far from where her remains had been discovered. So that was kind of a link. Obviously, DNA had linked them as well. Um, But apparently additional evidence had turned up in this investigation to prove that Alcala was the murderer. And so in 2016, he was charged with Thornton mur- Thornton's murder, but prosecutors opted not to extradite him to stand trial 
he would have had to go to Wyoming and I guess he was in pretty bad health. So they just decided not to do that. (laughs) And Alcala did claim that he took photos of Thornton. However, he does deny or did deny killing her, which I thought was interesting. And he also wrote a book while in jail claiming his innocence. I did not read it. I have no interest in reading it. I care not for anything he says, but apparently that's a thing. I don't know how you can claim your innocence when you have a buttload of evidence pointing to you, but that's just me. Yeah, I still don't understand how he was able to be charged with Thornton's murder after... I guess that's that's just a matter of being like, you're charged, we know you did it, but like, we can't take you to trial. Yeah, I guess like charged versus convicted. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I often get those mixed up. Yeah. I do too. So they were like, we're charging you with this, we cannot go to trial though to legally say yes, no, in a court of law. You killed Thornton. Right. But we all know that he killed Thornton. <laughs> we, we can kind <laughs> we of put two and do together. <laughs> um, he is also believed to have been responsible for the 1977 murder of Pamela Lamson, who had gone missing after she had arranged to meet with the photographer. Unfortunately, DNA collected from the scene was too gr- too degraded to test at the time. And while the death wow, while the death toll remains unknown, some do believe that it's somewhere between fifty and hundred and thirty women, which is quite crazy to me. Yeah. Um, and then kind of unrelated. This just makes me laugh because he's just he seems like a, such a stupid man. Um, while incarcerated, he apparently filed lawsuits against the state of California. One, for a slip-and-fall accident while he was in jail. And two, for failing to provide him with a low-fat diet while locked up. So we're going to sue the state of California for that? I'm assuming he didn't win. Assuming nothing came of it. Haven't heard (laughs) anything of it. I hope they did not entertain that. Like, I understand the whole, like, low-fat diet. Like, just because I'm your prisoner, like, there should still yeah. be, like, a like a level of care that you are required mm-hmm. to provide for me. But the slip and fall accident is, yeah. Yeah. I don't think just that's put necessarily a wet sign their fault. Every unless hallway. you can prove it was negligence. <laughs> but, like, no yeah. one cares. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you're in there for... Anyways. Like, anyways. <laughs> I won't get riled up about it. Um... But yes, on July 24th, 2021, Rodney Alcala died in California due to natural causes at the age of 77. Um, I will include a link to the photos made public on our website. And if you or someone you know has any information or could help identify those photographed, you can call 307-922-5295 or you can call 714-375-5066. And I'll put those sources um, in our sources as well. But yeah, that was Alcala. What a man. Yeah, that's crazy. And I'd like to... I'd like to think that my red flag radar has gotten pretty good over the years with my encounters. Um, But he just seems like something else. Yeah. Something else. 
Well, like, and the photos, I was just looking through them quickly, and he's actually not a bad photographer. Like, had he mm-hmm. continued on that path and not been, like, a creepy fucker, then it yeah. probably, he could have had a career in, like, fashion photography. Yeah. But, like, but he, and the he, age range of the people he was photographing is upsetting. Yeah, yeah I was looking through them as well, and it's... I can see what you were saying, Nicole, how like some of these definitely look like they were cropped mm-hmm. to like respect the people in them. But yeah. yeah, it's it is alarming the age range. Yeah. And I also like I like I don't want to victim shame, but I don't understand how someone can meet a random stranger and have him say, Let me take naked photos of you, and you don't think that that's odd. It could be part of the industry, though. That's the thing. I guess. With it being, um, I mean, I'm not in the fashion industry, but I can understand, like, they may have seen this as, like, this model thing at the mall where they're like, oh, this man's going to take photographs of me and he's going to, like, develop them and then I can use that for my portfolio, maybe. Yeah. And some witnesses were saying, like, he was very convincing very persuasive very endearing and so it was easy to trust him and like they didn't see it as like a malicious thing until maybe it was too late unfortunately he had pretty privilege like ted bundy (sighs) yeah true (laughs) he didn't age well though so that makes me feel better about it (laughs) he is so scary looking (laughs) 60 years in prison will do that to you yeah 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 absolutely well, thank you so much, Nicole, um, for telling us all about the case study of the dating game killer. Um, I had seen that clip of him in the dating game in like 2014 or something. And I was like, oh, wow, that's creepy. But I had no idea he was this bad and like killed this many people. Wow. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. No, that's crazy. Um But now, Journey, I am very excited to hear from you all about forensic sketch artists and how that is connected to this case. So would you care to give us the rundown, the the cool details about forensic sketch artists? For sure. So for this episode, I'm not going to be focusing too, like, only on forensic sketch artists um, because there's not a lot of, like informative information about forensic sketch artists and i took a class in forensic facial reconstruction so i'm gonna kind of try and combine the two even though they're kind of the same um so forensic art is defined as an artistic technique used for identification apprehension or conviction purposes and with that being said the forensic facial artists are asked to recreate an artistic rendering of the face of an unidentified individual in such a likeness that it can be identified through criminal investigation and so likeness is the key word here um, because they're often working to exclude people um, rather than draw like a perfect depiction off of a witness statement um so they're trying to like conjure up an image for you guys to be like oh that looks like so-and-so but they're not trying to actually draw so-and-so so forensic artists will be called to the scene of a crime to create drawings scale diagrams and models of crime scenes as well so they're um they would also i think would be a part of the crime scene reconstruction crew and uh pretty much 100 percent of their value in a case is as an investigative tool because 
the actual sketch holds very little weight in court as evidence, and its only real purpose is to generate leads for investigators. Um, so it's kind of just like a little addition to investigation. So the International Association for Identification or the IAI identifies three main disciplines of forensic art. So the first is composite art or composite art. The U.S. and Canada say it completely different to the point where the instructor that I had telling me about this, I had no idea what he was talking about. Really? Wow. Yeah. It was crazy. I was so confused. I was like, what's a composite? Um, Yeah, I don't like that. It's composite. mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, they're the same thing. We just say it differently. And I was like, oh, that's fun. Okay. Um, so composite art is a technique that is created by sketching an unknown individual using a number of individually described. I have parrots written down. <laughs> so, yes. Um, okay. I'm hoping that that was traits. Um, and I just spelled it super wrong. So that's funny. Um, this type of art produces a single graphic, think vivid picture, not gory picture, um, Mm -hmm. image that is designed to be a likeness or of similarity of the individual. And so this is the most common and well-known forensic service that forensic artists provide. They help develop leads. They're media friendly. They allow for public involvement and they can be sent out to other agencies to generate leads from them as well. And the artist has to be able to interview and relate to the witnesses as well as elicit valuable information that will kind of create the basis of the drawing. And so the artist also needs extensive knowledge of facial anatomy, drawing skills, and excellent cognitive interview skills. And I talk a little bit later about the issues with forensic art. Um, A lot of the artists aren't very good at interviewing because they're not like detectives. Yeah, I was going to say, so it's the artists themselves that are interviewing the people, not them sitting in on an interview? I couldn't really find like a yes or no to that question because the person who gave gave me a lecture on this, Mm -hmm. he worked for the Ontario police, like the OPP. Yeah. And so he was an officer who was also an artist kind of thing. Okay. So he kind of did art on oh, the side who was then okay. given this job. At least that's as much as I remember. But then I think oh. there are also times where no one maybe on the team is artistically skilled. Yeah. So they'll bring in a freelance artist. Okay. But I would, it would make sense to me to then also yeah. have a detective in there doing the interview yeah. and asking the questions. But um, I can understand like the artist asking like, facial feature questions but like is it also a crime interview going along with yeah facial feature questions so So i'm wondering if they're like if a detective is maybe trained in like the cognitive interview where they're like okay now like go back in time like close your eyes and try to envision and what do you see whereas the artist is like what do you see like doesn't really understand like the trauma that can go along with it yeah yeah exactly But who knows? I'm not artistically inclined, so I've got no (laughs) idea. Um, (laughs) And the second discipline is image modification. And so this is, um, or yeah, this is enhancements or alterations of photographs or images used for updating, clarifying, and or identifying an individual. And these modifications may include age progression and age regression. So the most common usage of an age progression is to assist with the capture of wanted fugitives. 
Um, the artist takes into consideration all of the variables involved with the natural process of aging of the human face. They gather information on the suspect or victim, such as lifestyle, genetics, hair loss, occupations, etc. And the artist then produces an educated estimation on how the individual might look. And the artist might also work with the family to see what traits are common like as they age. And uh, when you're doing this with the um, with computer programs, they usually like the program is used to paint directly on a digitized photograph of the subject. Oh. Um, but if you're not using um, a computer program, I would imagine they would just kind of like take a photo, enlarge it to like yeah. life size, and then put like a clear um, like, like sketch paper, paper on top and yeah. then just do it that way. I think I'm not 100% certain, but that's my best guess. Um, and so the same kind of programs are used with image enhancements where the artist adds features like eyeglasses, mustaches, beards, hats, different hairstyles, and anything else requested. Um, which I guess in this situation, you would know like what their eye color and hair color and stuff was. But for like facial reconstructions, if you find a skull, you don't often know what their yeah. eye or hair color is. And that changes a lot about how a person mm-hmm. looks. And so that leads into three, which is postmortem and facial reconstruction. And so this is a rebuilding of the facial features of either decomposed or partially decomposed human remains. And so postmortem reconstruction usually involves the use of digital software that allows forensic artists to create 3D images. However, most forensic artists perform facial reconstructions using sketches or producing 3D clay figures, um, which is what I learned how to do. And I did not have time to make <laughs> one for us, which is kind of a bummer, but I'm still going to try and do that because I think it would be super fun because I never actually oh, yeah. got to finish my facial reconstruction. COVID cut it off about halfway through. Oh, so I wrote out all the instructions, but I never actually got to do it. So um, within the postmortem reconstruction, um, we also have like 2D reconstructions. And so this is also used when unidentified skeletal remains are found. And so this process begins by gluing on tissue depth markers and then photographing the skull in profile and frontal views with a ruler next to the skull. And so the photos are then enlarged to life-size dimensions and then printed out. And they are put on wooden boards, um, just like clipboards, basically. And then the artist will put clear paper over it and they'll sketch on it. And then when they remove it, they'll have a more accurate sketch with the tissue depth markers that they were able to get from the skull. And then the artist estimates hair type and style from samples found on scene or by their race, gender, and or ethnic background. And this is supposedly cheaper and faster. And you can also use this method with um, a decomposing body, which... I didn't fully understand how they explained that other than just like you would take all the flesh off the skull and do it that way. But I don't know if they're able to kind of like pad the flesh on the skull and kind of make it lifelike that way, Um, which is kind of morbid to think about. And so I kind of wanted to go into a little bit of the history of facial reconstructions because it's very interesting. So um, the first evidence of a facial reconstruction was in 7000 BC in Jericho, which is such a long time ago. Um, And they used plaster and then shells for the eyes. And so uh, researchers found 10 skulls like this, but only one had a mandible. So they knew it wasn't for a forensic reason. It was um, more like artistic. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. So were they... I mean, I guess we'll never know because we can't ask the folks, but like they were just 
playing around with skulls for fun to see if they could recreate who they were. Yeah, I don't know if it was more of like if it was like an accurate reconstruction or if it was mm. just kind of they would kind of add it till it kind of looked like a human and then would put shells over the eyes or what. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them didn't have a mandible, so they couldn't really know the full shape of the face. Okay. So I don't know if it was more of like a like a painting. Yeah. Interesting. Or not, cool. But very cool. And then in the 17th and 18th century Italy, there was a reconstruction of the whole body using the skeleton as a framework, which is kind of cool. And at this time, we learned that the shape of the skull correlates to the shape of the muscles. So that you're kind of able to learn the form and the function of the skull muscles. And then in March 1875 at Horse Ferry Wharf on the Thames River, there was a severed head found in the mud. Um, whoever found it took it home, cleaned it up, put it on a stake in the center of the town with hopes that it would get identified. Um, they were smart enough to realize that it was going to start decomposing, so they did put it in a jar of alcohol to preserve it. And <laughs> I don't be so creepy just to see in your town square. <laughs> right? I would hate that. Especially if there's, like, no context. Like, if it's just a head. Yeah. Just um, going to get your bread one day and, ah, there's a head in here. Yeah, literally. And I don't know if they were able actually, like, if they were ever able to identify it or not. Um, I didn't have that part written down in my notes. But, um, and even when I Googled the wharf, like, nothing came up. So I was like, well, not meant to be. Yep. Um, And we can't talk about the history of forensics without mentioning Alphonse Bertillon. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the 1880s, he developed an identification system called Portrait Parlay or speaking likeness. And this system was a compilation of facial features taken from pictures with descriptive detail provided. And this classification system provided a foundation for modern recall systems that aid artists in producing sketches. Um, I feel like we've talked about him on other previous episodes. I think fingerprinting was a big one um, because he was one of the first people to kind of invent a classification system, even though, I don't know much about this one, but his other one was just dead wrong. Um, But it kind of just laid a basis for everyone else to kind of build off of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then after him, anatomists started to become interested in facial reconstructions and were largely using it to authenticate famous people. So in 1884, a man named Welker compared skulls uh, to portraits of Raphael and death masks of Kant to figure out if he could find, like, their body kind of thing. Cool. Um, And so he used his knowledge of anatomy to kind of compare and see if they were real. And in the year prior, in 1883, he took facial tissue depths of people to make comparisons as well. He did, like, a huge study on that. It was actually pretty cool. Um, and then in 1895, he tried to identify Bach with facial tissue depths, um, but I don't think he was successful in doing that. Um, but I, again, I didn't have many notes on how that actually went. And then in 1898, the American method of facial reconstruction was made by Coleman and Buckley. Um, one was an anatomist and one was a um, sculptor. And so this is where you do a facial reconstruction right on the skull instead of on a cast. And they built up clay between tissue depth markers. And it's almost like what we see Angela do on Bones with her computer, Mm -hmm. Um, but not computerized. (laughs) Uh, So Coleman also did a reconstruction of Dante and a Stone Age woman, which is pretty cool. 
And then in 1908, a Neanderthal uh, skeleton was found in a French cave. And this is one of the first times that facial tissue depths were used in more of a forensic context to trying to figure out like who this person was. And then in 1916 in the USA, the first forensic attempt at using facial reconstruction was done. Um, bones were found in a Brooklyn cellar. And when they were able to show the reconstruction, they were actually able to identify the person, which is kind of cool. And then in 1920, a sketch was done for a bombing incident that happened on Wall Street. They interviewed a blacksmith who could provide enough facial detail for a sketch, and they were able to arrest the perp, which is also pretty cool. And then in 1971, the Russian method was invented by Mikhail Gerasimov, and it's where you put all the muscles and soft tissue anatomy are recreated, and then a thin skin layer is put over it, so it's very intense and like um a lot a lot of work and then in 1977 the manchester method was invented by richard neve and so this is a combination of the russian and american methods where only some muscles are applied and not all because it would take too long and then in north america we use clay on the skull but europe uses more of a 3d digital reconstruction with his which is apparently less expensive but I don't understand how like a 3D program would be less expensive than having someone like sit and put clay on a skull. But I guess you would have to like pay the person to do that. How long yeah. it would take? They would have to have anatomy knowledge, plus supplies. Like 3D yeah. like application, you have one person going. I'm going to press these buttons and we're going to do something with it. Exactly. And then you have like a repeatability option with it. You can do that as many times over as you want. Yeah, very much so. And apparently, like, the oil clay that you're supposed to use is very expensive. And um, when I was taking this class, um, my professor, the clay she bought was from, like, an art store in Calgary. And she's like, I can hardly find it anymore. Like, it's super expensive and so special. So, like, don't waste it. And we were like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, And so she taught me the Manchester method. And so that's kind of the history. There really wasn't much to it i'd imagine there's more if you really want to go into it but that was all i learned um so the jobs required of a forensic artist include sketching composites of criminal suspects of unidentified people they recreate skeletal decomposed or mutilated images using 2d and 3d computer imagery they sketch composites from decomposed or partially decomposed remains. They create age progression sketches of suspects and missing people. They prepare diagrams, chart evidence boards, and 3D reconstructions of crime scenes for court hearings and other judicial proceedings. They prepare reports, exhibits, and displays for court proceedings. And they can artistically enhance or alter surveillance photographs, which is kind of cool. And so these tasks are not limited to... Um, all artistic tasks as they're often required to conduct interviews with both witnesses and victims so they can get the necessary information to create their sketches as I kind of said earlier on and they also need to work together with other forensic disciplines to create the best image because if there is a skull they need a forensic anthropologist to come in and create a biological profile so that they can know which tissue depth markers to use as well as hair color skin color eye color all of those things Um, as well as uh, sex of the skull. 
Um, something else that's important to mention is that people need to recognize the person. And a lot of forensic art professionals are having like a big conversation o- about like recognition. Head shape combined with feature location and relationships is more valuable than feature details alone. And it's known that if you put the features in the right place on the head with the right head shape, it will look enough like the person to be recognized. Um, so they can kind of be in the wrong like there was something where like if they're in the right features in the wrong spot or the wrong features in the right spot it'll just kind of like look enough and he showed us an example of i think it was donald trump with all the features out of place but it looked enough like him for all of us to be like that's donald trump like it reminds me of that mind trick where you have all of the i think you put the head upside down but yeah your facial features they'll flip upside down and then they'll have another one where the head's upside down but the facial features are the same way oh, and like okay. you, like i'll see if i can find an example of it um mm-hmm. but yes yeah it was pretty cool how little it takes for someone to be able to recognize a person mm-hmm. yeah um and so with that being said forensic artists also have to have a solid understanding of facial anatomy digital imagery human memory aging trends and victim psychology um that one is more for just interviewing um, and so like all forensic disciplines, forensic artists have to maintain accurate case records, ensure that their artwork is properly handled and stored, and they may also be required to testify in court, even though the actual sketch is not a huge um, piece of evidence. Um, forensic artists are also considered multi-skilled professionals and are often proficient in all three of the disciplines that I mentioned earlier, even though they might have more knowledge in one area than another. It's called the Thatcher effect. As in Margaret. Oh, I've heard of that. Oh, I think I have heard of that. We would have learned about it in psychology. There's an example about Adele where like she's upside down, but her features are not and she looks like Adele. And then there's another one where her face is right side up and her features are upside down and she does not look like Adele. Oh, I don't like the pictures. They're just really, there's just something a little off about them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't love but that. But I think it just goes to show, like, feature. What was it that you said? Your features are one way, and like you had a line. Um, it was a good line. Oh dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even remember what it was. Like, if you put the features in the right place on the head with the right head shape, it'll look enough like the person to be recognized. Yeah. Something kind like of that. like yeah, right features, wrong spot, wrong features, right spot, kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I wish I could remember, like, how that goes. But either way, so the education requirements to be a forensic artist are slim to none. Basically, you need an associate's or bachelor's degree in graphic art or design. Um, I would imagine that even if you didn't and you were just a very skilled artist, that would be enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can also be certified as a forensic artist. Um, Most most forensic professionals uh, should be certified through an accredited program. We have a huge conversation about that. And yeah, very much so. Um, So the most widely accepted program is through the International Association for Identification with the forensic artist certification. So it's kind of cool that even though... um, there's not a lot known about it. It's still one of the like few accredited um, forensic disciplines. And so candidates will have to pick um, 
like one, two, or three of the above like disciplines that are recognized by the IAI to focus on and to, um, they can do like all three or just one and two or whatever, but they still need a proficient, um, understanding of whichever one they're not like majorly focusing on, um, to qualify for accreditation, they need at least 80 hours of IAI-approved forensic art training, at least 40 hours of related workshops, lectures, and short program training, at least two years of experience as a forensic artist, at least 30 forensic art samples that include aid progressions, composites, and reconstructions. Um, they need to have a portfolio that demonstrates their forensic art techniques, and they also need a letter from their current employer, and they must complete and pass a written and practical test to be certified. Um, and so some issues with uh, facial reconstructions are that composite drawings are only as good as your witness. Many forensic artists are not qualified. Um, I would imagine that was all I had written in my notes under issues. And so I'm assuming that meant like qualified for interviewing or like qualified as forensics. I don't really know. Um, and the most important part of facial reconstruction is the interview and freelance artists, um, don't have a background in, in investigation, which we've already talked about. Um, age renderings are like fairly subjective, um, which is f very dangerous in forensics because you can mess that up fairly easily. Um, and factors such as hair, facial hair, weight, and many other things can cause issues in age progressions or regressions because someone can look so much different with or without a beard kind of thing. Um, and that's pretty much all I have for a forensic artist. Um, there was not a lot on it um, that I could find. So I hope you're able to learn something and I'll try and do that skull thing and document it a little bit so I can share that with you guys as well. Yeah, that would be so cool. Mm -hmm. but thank you so much, Journey, for telling us all about that. I honestly can't even imagine like the talent you need to be able to <laughs> do this skill. job. Yeah, like, right. It blows my mind every time I see like the news release like press releases with these i'm like oh my god you're yeah, amazing I, I have a question quickly mm -hmm. do you know if like say you have a witness and a forensic artist comes in are they providing like a booklet of different eye types different eye shapes different eyebrow shapes different nose shapes and then they kind of pick and choose and they like create a collage of a person or are they like hmm he had like pensive eyes and the artist knows what to do with that <laughs> i have no idea okay i <laughs> i've like, seen it both ways like well seen mm -hmm. it tv is a bit different in, than real life but like <laughs> from the media um i've seen it both ways so i'm curious to know like how it would actually be conducted because i feel like one would not only be more beneficial but also efficient and also more accurate <sighs> Or it would be like with the photos on um, like photo lineups where mm. you're like, oh, maybe they were like that. And you're actually changing the image that you have in your head after seeing yeah. things like you that. You could present them in a way like you would a photo lineup doing mm -hmm. like 20 eyes after one another, though. Well, I would almost be like get them to describe in as much detail as they could and then draw it and then like, oh, does this what, need to I be changed? Change does the eyebrows okay. look more like this or like this? Like. Yeah, because yeah. I'm just thinking, like, personally, if someone asked me to try and describe the two of you without you guys being in front of me, mm -hmm. that image would not look like you two. I am so sorry. <laughs> but like, I don't I think I could good. do it either. I don't blame you. I yeah. don't get how it's done. Like, the descriptions and, 
like, yeah, I guess the interviewing has to be good enough to draw out a good enough description, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And you just, there's got to be some trigger words that are just like, yeah, are able to kind of like elicit like, oh, the eyebrows were like this or they were like this or you have like the, yeah, I don't know. I was like, there's no way I could describe a witness (laughs) accurately. I'd be like, they were kind of tall, but maybe they were short. I don't know. Like face was kind of round, but also not like but what was crap. also kind of pointy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly like yeah so i don't know kudos to everyone who has been able to get an accurate like draw yeah. an accurate sketch but also describe an accurate yeah. sketch yeah definitely we really need those eyewitnesses that actually know how to describe stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> um But thank you, Journey, and thank you, Nicole, for telling us about those interesting topics today. Um, I learned a lot about the case and about the science um, because I didn't really know much about either of them. But I think facial reconstruction is, I mean, like I was saying earlier, it's just so fascinating. So with that being said, um, our next episode is with the ladies from Gap Science. Um, We had them on. It was such a good conversation. Um, They actually have real world experience with forensics. So it was awesome to kind of just, you know, pick their brain. And they taught us a little bit about what it's like being a real forensic technician. So definitely check that out when it comes out in December. Um, My interesting thing is not really like, ooh, look at this discovery or update. Um... It's just an event that I learned about that took place a hundred years ago. And I was like, this is wild. Okay. So did you know that in 1919, there was a tank filled with 2.3 million U.S. gallons of molasses in Massachusetts and it bursted um, yes. because one of the steel pipes had broken and it burst. And this <laughs> caused what is now known as the Great Molasses Great. Flood. So, yep. Nicole, I hear that you're yep. you're excited about this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so wild. And if, funny enough, the only reason why I know of this is because of a YouTube channel called Puppet History put on by Watcher. And oh my Shane god, that's Renee. how I heard about it too. <laughs> oh it was so good so good drowning in molasses would not be fun no um (laughs) so this flood actually resulted in and this would be such a scary sight um so i looked up like approximately how much 2.3 million u.s gallons is and it's about 900 times the size of a um an olympic swimming pool so we have 900 olympic size swimming pools yeah molasses not even like a viscous substance like molasses coming at you at 56 kilometers an hour 56 kilometers how does it travel that fast right (laughs) i don't know but it's crazy um it did unfortunately kill 21 people and injured over 150 um but apparently people in boston like living there for decades after said that on a hot summer day they could sometimes still smell the oh that was a tongue twister they could still smell the molasses in the air on a hot summer day that's crazy wild (laughs) what a neat 
like factoid about history did you know that's like the best trivia question you could ever have you know what i mean like it is the ideal trivia question that's like where was the great molasses flood of 1919 (laughs) (laughs) that's so cool thank you for sharing um, that was fun (laughs) oh absolutely i love weird history events those are my favorite did you knows yeah (laughs) um but with that um Nicole, would you like to tell us where people can find us? Of course. Um, people can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at What the Forensics. You can find us on X now? <laughs> on X at WT Forensics PC. I recommend Instagram or Facebook. Or our lovely, lovely website, whatthefrensics.ca. We actually have a lot of fun putting that together. And we have like our resources, our source images, um, did you knows we've been putting on every once in a while, Forensic Fridays. It's kind of your one-stop shop for everything What the Forensics. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, fun factoids, you can email us at whatthefrensics at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Nicole. And uh, if you like our podcast, uh, make sure to give us a review wherever you're listening to them. Uh, We really love to read them. We really love to get your feedback. And it does also help us out, too. So this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We really hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Bye.